you're listening to the Aim to Win podcast. I'm Wade Thomas, and I believe that every one of you has a wealth of potential just waiting to come out. And I'm here to help you reach that potential. So now, here's the Aim to Win podcast. Welcome to the Aim to Win podcast. I'm Wade Thomas, and today I'm delighted to have Candace Gottlieb Clark on the podcast. Candace is a renowned author, business advisor, speaker, coach, and conflict management specialist. She founded Dynamic Team Solutions to help businesses strengthen their leaders and teams through enhanced communication, teamwork, leadership, and conflict management. Candace holds a master's degree in counseling and is a board-certified executive coach. She's a sought-after keynote speaker and writer on topics including leadership, communication, and team dynamics. Candace is also a contributing writer with Forbes Coaches Council and has been published in Business Insider and other mainstream publications. Her newly published book, Find, Fix, and Fill Your Leadership Gap, uses a narrative of real stories to illuminate key lessons in trust, role clarity, and conflict management for leaders of all types. So welcome to the show, Candace. Thank you so much for having me, Wade. I'm glad to be with you today. Yeah, glad to have you. And what we like to do to get started is to have you tell your story so that everybody knows who's talking to them. Okay, thank you so much. I love, you know, we all like talking about ourselves, right? Uh, so, just to tell you a bit about myself, you know, my drive from early on before I was even in a career was to help transform the workplace. And that came from my childhood because growing up, my parents divorced and we lived with my mom and she had, you know, a non professional job. She was an administrative assistant, an executive assistant, and she felt like she was beholden to her employer for anything. And she often worked in places where she was unhappy and she would bring that misery she felt from any particular day home with her. And growing up, I just thought, gosh, you know, it's, I felt so sorry for her that she had such an awful time at work. And then she'd come home angry and it was very apparent she was miserable, but felt the need to stick with her job. And from that, I, I had just from the earliest time, this thought of the workplace should be a place where people can really have a positive experience. Work doesn't have to be miserable. And you know, it, it's often the people that make it so hard, not other things. And so that is from early on, that has been my focus is to develop a way to make that possible. And granted, it took me well into my uh, 30s to decide on, you know, to have the skills, the knowledge, even the um, the vision for how I could do that. But once it came to be, I was just on fire. I, I had a way to illuminate that passion for other people and to support them in creating a better work environment. Yeah. So exciting. So you kind of found your, your passion or your calling. Yes. And, and it was, you know, it's, it's fun to talk about it from that stage because I think so often something does ignite within us that need to drive in a particular way, but it's not, it's not true for everybody. Other people, it's just something they genuinely enjoy, or it's something that has become, you know, lucrative for them. And so they stick with it. But mine was really a passion of heart, you know, of, of connecting with what I believed everybody needed to be successful and, and to feel contented. I mean, that's such a big part of our lives from what the age of about maybe 20 or 25, all the way through maybe 65 or as late as 80 for some people, you know, you need to be in a place where you feel a level of being valued, of being appreciated and a level of happiness in your own world. And while happiness at work, isn't what I talk about every day, it's the core of what drives me. So you said, um, one of the things you said there was that oftentimes what creates that state of unhappiness at work it's not situations, it's people. So yes. Say more about that. Well, you know, 
in, in my work and what I developed early on was um, a specialty in mediation and conflict resolution. I, I had a master's degree in counseling. So I had a lot of knowledge and, and intuition already built into me on how people function and how they work. But then I came into um, the awareness of the field of mediation and how conflict resolution can really transform a relationship because so often things are created out of a misunderstanding. And, you know, I've been in my field now for about 20 years. And in that time, I've had the privilege of working inside businesses of all sizes, um, because it always comes down to even a team, even if it's a, you know, mega corporation. And I have worked for some in entertainment and other industries, but also small businesses. And there's not a lot of difference because at the bottom of it all, are people and how they work with each other. And so, you know, early on, I, I developed a a passion for mediation because I saw the path toward helping people resolve their differences. And it was incredibly rewarding, but not everything is a conflict. Not everything is a, a level of friction or discord. Sometimes it's just a level of dysfunction. And I found when I worked with companies very often, um, I'd be helping people at whatever level, but I'd find out a lot of the issues trickled from leadership. And so I, I, um, I learned to ask these business owners that I'd work with early on say, you know, before we'd even begun the project, I'd say, if I find out something that we're working on trickles, you know, leads back, stems back to you, how would you like me to let you know? And I'd always get this self-deprecating laugh and this, you know, kind of knowing smile. And they'd say, well, of course it will. Or I fully expect I'm going to hear that. And it, it taught me a few things. One, it made it super easy to go back to them because then it would just simply be, hey, Mr. Brown, um, do you remember that conversation we had? And they'd smile and they'd say, oh yeah, what did I do? Um, but it also showed me just how genuinely leaders are doing their best, even if they're creating the most egregious outcomes that they don't seem to recognize they've caused and they're angry with their staff for this friction that's happening or this, you know, lack of accountability and these other things that we know are problems. I learned that they didn't do it knowingly. And it helped me to really frame a philosophy, which I call vindicate, don't villainize. And it's not just for the leader, it's for anybody. And it's to say that we're all trying our best and blind to the mistakes we're making. That's the leadership gap, right? It's those things we're blind to. And I write about that extensively in the book, but it's just a philosophy I have that really extends beyond the workplace. We are all, I, most of the time, there's times that we're doing, you know, malfeasance on purpose, you know, <laughs> something right. has really annoyed us and we're, 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 we're vengeful. But even in those moments that there's a vengefulness, there's a kernel underneath it of rationale. This person deserved it because of this. And so when you go into it, trying to understand a person and vindicate them, not just look at them as the villain that needs to be shamed or disciplined, it brings up this entirely different presence that allows you to create change because people are open to being vindicated. They're mm -hmm. not open to being villainized. You know, that's interesting because, you know, you put forth that people really mean well, generally. Yes. And, uh, but a lot of times our systems and how we manage are based upon a premise that um, people aren't doing that, that they don't have exactly. the best interests at heart. You know, that's why we put monitoring systems on computers when we're working at home, you know, or there are other such things. So how does a leader kind of get past that? Because I, I think that's ingrained in a lot of leaders is that I have to make sure they have the best interests of the company at heart. Well, I think if, you know, and 
you know, it speaks to the core of what I do. And so I'll tell, I'll say it more from the stance of what I do and, and sort of how I would suggest or propose that they would do it, because that's, that's in essence, what I'm telling people in, in my book is how do you do this? What do you do? Uh, you know, it's not just a what's wrong, it's what to make, what to do to make it right, of course. And so what I look to is to creating sort of that fresh platform because it can be uncomfortable for a leader to suddenly change their path. So you introduce that to your team. You say, hey, I'm becoming self-aware of some different things. I'm taking a leadership course, I'm reading a book, what have you. And I've learned that I need to look at things from the stance of you guys are trying your best, just as I'm trying my best. And I'm going to ask you when we meet about things, questions about the work and where you are in a different way. I'm going to ask it to you in a, a, an expectation that you're going to tell me what you were trying to accomplish rather than my shaming you for what went wrong. But I want you to also be able to take ownership for what you've learned from it. Because no, if, if somebody doesn't explain what they've learned, and I'm now speaking to you rather than to a leader and what they're sharing, Wade, um, you know, if a leader, if a, any person doesn't also accept some ownership of what they're doing wrong, it's very hard to have compassion for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it would be the sort of thing a leader would need to say, here's how I'm going to shift, why I'm shifting, how I'm going to shift and what I expect from you. And then just to start it, just to say, you know, this is going to, this can happen this week. I'm having one-on-ones with each of you this week. And just to see how that goes, it's going to start off a little rocky because the leader is going to be uncomfortable. The team is going to be a little surprised by it, but it will shift just that one conversation. If it's done with authenticity, it'll shift how people respond and, and it'll give them a sense, especially if there's some continuity of it, that, wow, this is a really engaging place to be. My, my boss, my leader, my team, we care about each other. We're, we're listening for the best in each other. And that builds one of the core pillars, which you talked about when you introduced me, trust. When a, and, and it also introduces a couple others, role clarity. A leader's role is to do those things. It is to open yeah. up the pathways to success for their team. And you don't by shaming people. And you don't by, by just building on the negatives. You do by focusing on the positives and helping people to self-reflect on what they can be doing different. And it doesn't mean you can't tell them more than what they notice, but you tell it to them in a sense of, I have more things to share with you that might help you further. Yes. Yeah, so humility and authenticity. Yeah. So And compassion, you know, having compassion. People are doing their best. They're really trying. And yeah. believe in that people will reciprocate that level of connection that you're, you know, you're putting out there as a leader. Yeah. That's, you know, that's an interesting concept as well. You know, when you start trusting the people that work for you, you'll find that they trust you more as well. Absolutely. And, and it does, I mean, trust absolutely starts with the leader. When a leader doesn't trust their team, even if they think they're hiding it, they're not because it means they're less transparent they're maybe less open to criticism or feedback. There's a lack of respect, maybe, of what other people are accomplishing or doing. It's a focus on the negatives. All those things demolish trust. So this is a this is a question that comes up to me a lot. But how does a leader start to gain trust in their employees? I think it's by showing them trust. It's by doing just what we were, were already discussing. It's by telling them, you know, and and being that vulnerable person to say, I'm changing the way I'm doing things. So being transparent, not just doing it differently, 
telling them you're going to do it differently. That's a level of transparency and honesty, telling them why, which shows that you're open to feedback because you've given yourself feedback or a book or a coach has given you feedback and you're taking it. When you show you're open to learning and growing and changing, it shows them that they need to be as well. So I think so much of it is modeling, just doing it and, and telling your team even, I want us all to rise to an occasion of doing this. You know, maybe not telling them, show them first that you're doing mm-hmm. that. And if they aren't starting to do it on their own, let them know the expectation is, and, and not to say, be like me, but to say, doing these things and say, I'm, I'm working to do these things where I fail or I, I don't reach that level. I am open to your telling me because I want to be better at that. And the more humility and openness a leader shows, the more they deliver that reciprocity from their team. Love that. So, so tell me about the book. So why, why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I realized, well, I had quite a few clients, you know, kind of ping me, you know, because just in general conversation, I'd put out a thought or a piece of information that they hadn't heard me say before. And they'd be like, oh, <clears throat> you need to write a book. I need to be able to write these things down. I need a place to access this, this thought process. Um, but also because I can't reach every business. I mean, I would love to. And my team, I've expanded my team. I have a lot more people now that all help to work with clients in this way. And and we do work with um, individuals as well as teams. We do a lot of things. But I realized I wanted to be able to genuinely make a change in the world, make a change for leaders, which makes a change for employees, which makes a change for families and communities. You know, and 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 yeah, that's a bit grandiose, but that's why I really wanted to do that. And it was burning in me for a very long time before I actually wrote the book and then rewrote it and then edited it and rewrote it again because <laughs> I wanted it to be not just a, um, a vanity project. I wanted it to have real roots that would really help transform people one at a time, business by business, community by community, family by family. You know, I, I realize it starts small, but that's, that's why I wrote it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it really does. You can really change the world by changing the experience in a workplace, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's why why we both do what we do, right? We we yeah. passionately believe that by helping the individuals, we help the group. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, talk a little bit about what the book is. What's what's the book about? So, the book I actually use three stories of of clients I'd worked with in the past, um, and I tell the. I teach the lessons through these three stories. And I do that because I think it helps people to be more self-reflective when they have someone else they're looking at than just themselves. And I bring up these three different leaders who are all well-meaning, good people who created turmoil in their workplace. And, and the three different kind of stories are the one who's the legacy leader who grew up within the company and now is a leader within it. And a lot of people reporting the one who came in from the outside and took over an established team and tried to create meaningful change. And the one who was, um, you know, kind of there in the middle, but was brought in to establish a new team. And each one had very different styles. And, and I realized as I was writing it and I was teaching these lessons, which I, you know, scoped out as part of my outline, I realized that they really boiled down to three main functions that leaders need to have exceptional skills in um, and awareness in. It's not just skills, it's awareness, which is a lot of what the book helps to bring out. And those are those three pillars of trust, role clarity, and conflict management. And I realized those were consistent across every leader I've ever worked with as the areas that needed to be looked at. And I think this could be true for any coach or leader um, or consultant out there who's working with leaders to consider those three pillars. Because if any of them is weak, it's a three-legged stool. If any is weak, they take the other two down. If you don't have trust, 
your team's not going to respect your role and you're not going to be effective in managing their conflict. If you don't understand that your role is to basically create the smooth path for your team to be successful. And I, I know this is an audio podcast, not a visual one. So I'm just going to describe it. You know, we, we think of leaders often in like a pyramid of an org chart right there at the top. And, and I talk about role clarity as flipping that pyramid upside down. You are at the bottom. You are supporting everybody because you are remo- removing the hurdles. And those hurdles include interference from outsiders, interference from within, conflicts that evolve. And most leaders I've encountered, and I have worked with thousands, most leaders I've encountered are conflict avoidant on some level. And maybe that's how they were able to get up there because they don't ca- ruffle a lot of feathers, but it means that they don't help take the, the, um, the barriers out that are affecting their team. Conflict is a barrier. And the more competent your team, the more likely they are to have areas of conflict because they're passionate, they're competent. They know what they need to know, do. They know how to get there. And if they don't know how to communicate through those things and, and get through those differences of opinion, those passions in a way that's productive, it becomes destructive instead. So that's the rule clarity. If you don't have that, you don't have conflict getting managed and you don't have the trust of your team because you aren't showing them that you know what your role is. And they can't tell you they're no more aware of it than you are. They just know they're unhappy. They're dissatisfied. And they may like you personally and still want to leave the job because professionally they are miserable. And finally, if you don't have skills in managing conflict, and it doesn't mean getting in and resolving it like a mediator, it means knowing how to keep conflict from getting out of control, knowing when to get help and when to um, help the people resolve it themselves. In fact, at no point in the book do I tell the leader how to resolve the conflict. I tell them how to help get the conflict resolved, which is different. And if they don't know how to do that, and they don't have the skills to even prevent it, which I do talk a lot about how to prevent conflict, then they're not going to have, again, the trust of their team. And they're not owning that that is a part of their role. Like I said, all three are evenly tied together and influence the other two. Yeah, excellent. So as you go into businesses and and as you're writing a book, what are some of the common trends that you saw where organizations or leaders weren't getting the three pillars right? I would say probably the most common one, and and pretty much every human being I've ever met does this from time to time, but it's using the expression, trust me. (laughs) Trust me is the most lethal thing to ever say to somebody because it sort of, and I'm just going to almost, you know, give you a laundry list of some of the reasons why. When you say it, you're saying, I don't want to give you all the details. When you're saying it, you're saying, I don't trust you perhaps with all the details. You're saying, I know better than you. You're saying, I know you don't know everything you need to know, but I want you to still move forward. I mean, you're, you're giving people reason to doubt you at the exact moment you're saying, trust me. Yeah. And, and yet we're all given to saying it. I could say, trust me, trust me is the problem, right? But that's <laughs> saying, believe something I'm telling you when you don't have your own evidence of it. And that is something that really was a downfall for many leaders. One of them in particular in the story I told, it really was his under, you know, what took him down because he used it a lot with his, um, with his group. He was a, a dean of a university and it was like the entirety of their faculty were in the dark about things. And he was constantly saying, trust me. And the more he said it, the more fear it started to create. Hmm. Because people saw stuff happening, but they didn't understand why. And the answer was always, trust me. 
but sometimes it injured them or injured their fellow faculty who they were close with or gave an advantage to another group who didn't in their mind deserve the advantage. Trust me, led to more and more fear, more and more silos, more and more destruction. And people there were tenured. They couldn't just suddenly pick up and move. It, it was a firestorm that was created. And that was one of the biggest things that led to it was the words, trust me. So what's a better, what's a better way to do that than trust me? <laughs> Telling people, here's what's going on. Here's what we need to do. Here's why I think this is the best course of action. And do you have any concerns, you know, engaging them? You know, really, again, it, it's sort of um, that same parts that I'd mentioned with um, regard to trust. And I'll share with you something I have in the book, which I happen to love. Um, when it comes to creating trust, there's four main pieces to it. There's transparency, and that means sharing information, providing people with the details and knowledge they need, because most people are competent and intelligent enough to know what to draw similar conclusions as to what you would draw. So you don't have to say, trust me, you give them the information and they understand why you're reaching that decision. Um, honesty. And that's the simplest one. And we all are pretty good at being honest, but that doesn't mean we gain trust because if there's honesty, but you're <laughs> withholding a lot, that doesn't build trust, right? So people often default to, I'm honest with people. Yes, but are you transparent? <laughs> and yeah. then the openness is the third piece of it. Openness, um, meaning you're receptive to their information, to their input, to learning, to growing, to basically doing what you're asking them to do and showing respect. And that's pretty obvious. But if you do those other three things without respect, you're not going to build trust. You're going to build discord and, and distrust. And if you think of those four letters, T-H-O-R, it spells Thor. And this is, I'm sharing this because I want people to remember it. Thor is a Norse god, was a Norse god. And Thor had the, uh, the mighty hammer and was known for creating storms, but Thor was also known for protection. Well, when you use transparency, honesty, openness, and respect, and you build trust, you create safety and security. And if you do not, you bring down that mighty hammer and you mm. create storms. Love that. Especially now if there's a Thor movie coming out, I believe. <laughs> so, so yes. Your, your timing is good. The, um, but you know, it's kind of interesting you say that, but yeah, at least in my experience, it, it's really hard for organizations to get the transparency thing right. Oh, you so know, agreed. Yes. There, there's so much that's withheld. Why is that? And it's not just what's withheld. I mean, I must have spent 30 pages. <laughs> well, probably got edited down to less than 30, but on transparency, because it's not just that they don't know what to be transparent about, or it's not, you know, on what to share. It's they don't know what not to share. <laughs> and it's, you know, like I talk about people that think they're being transparent and they start leaders and they're, they're sharing things personally about themselves. And that is entirely the wrong direction. I bring up where transparency with um, personal stuff is relevant and it's where it's life affecting, life changing. A baby's coming. A family member has passed. You're getting married or divorced. You're in a major car accident and you're not going to be at work. Those things you offer transparency. You're suffering from a medical condition. That means you won't be focused. They impact you on some level at work or they are so meaningful to the rest of your life. If you don't tell people, that destroys trust. It says you don't trust them with that high level of information, um, but you don't share the other stuff. You know, you don't share you had an argument with your spouse. You don't, you don't go into the details of, of parts of your life that are 
irrelevant to the workplace. You just don't. Um, but what you do share when it comes to workplace things, and I'm, I'm glad you asked this because it is such a murky thing for people. What you do share is the rationale for things. You may not be able to share the details, but you can share the rationale. You can tell an employee, you know, maybe you're going through a merger and acquisition and you cannot share that. That could cause an exodus of your employees. I recognize that. And so it might be, okay, I can't be fully transparent. You can say, we're going through some um, changes organizationally. And as a part of that, we're going to be making these shifts in the company. And, and at, right at this moment, I'm not at liberty to tell you much more, but I'm open to answering any questions you have within this realm. And, and that's a really big one. And that's one of the most complicated ones because there needs to be a level of opacity, right? There needs mm -hmm. to be some way of protecting the organization, the business itself in, in the mix of this. But you can also say, I will be able to share more at this time. Or yeah. here are the impacts you can expect that you will see over the next few months as we go through this transition, because I don't want you to be worried. Here are the things that will change. Here are the things that won't change. So that even though people don't know everything. They know what affects them, which is really all they need. They need to know their job is secure. If you can say that, which sometimes yeah. you cannot. Um, and if you cannot, you can say, we can't assure that everybody's job's going to be the same at the end of this, but we will make sure nobody is given less than 90 days notice of things we are going to be doing. So they don't start looking for a job, you know, because they're scared. Right. right? And that's, that's the hazard is you need to find places. And I used a very extreme example, but I think in, in today's day and age, a lot of businesses are looking at M&As. You know, I know some of our clients are going through things of that ilk and they are very, very tight-lipped for good reason. Yeah. 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 That, that's excellent because you can't be completely transparent because there's, you know, a lot of reasons you wouldn't, but those are some good, good tools to use when you can't be. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so don't how does, don't, don't deny that you're being opaque about certain things, but give some rationale. You know, yeah. I'm not legally able to share more or, you know, it would be, it, it would be at this point in time that I'll be able to tell you more. So people, people know what to expect. It's not easy to be in the dark. Yeah. I love that. You know, just a, a great tool to kind of get around that. So how does all this translate to, uh, to an organization that might be operating in a kind of a hybrid format or a completely remote format? How, how are these things different? Oh, they're so different. I mean, I was started writing the book before COVID, finished it during COVID, published it as we were coming out of COVID. You know, it's <laughs> it's interesting. And I did not include a chapter on COVID. I think I have it in just the uh, the uh, gratitude at the end of the book, you know, that that's when it was being written. Because these lessons are going to be different for every company regardless um, of, of how they operate. And there are so many different variations, but I think what matters is knowing and knowing, okay, I need to recognize that my role is to get rid of these boundaries. My role is going to be to prevent the conflict through these methods that are in the book, but also to address it or to teach people to address it. I think things like that are going to be consistent regardless. It's knowing those roles, knowing what's expected, but part of it is and this is for the trust as well as for the managing conflict. And it's part of the person's role is how do you build connection with your team? And that's going to be key. And one thing I learned from another uh, book that I read, and I just love this book. It's, um, it's called the nine lies. What is it? Nine lies at work. And now I'm remembering the wrong guy. It's Ashley Goodall. And oh, I can't remember the other author at this moment, but they talk. One of the lies is that, um, that people need feedback. And then they talk about 
why that's actually not true. And it's an interesting phenomenon, but the same thing has to do with um, how people, um, another piece that's super relevant here is how many people a person manages or oversees. And they describe that it depends on the individual. Not It's not a set number, but it's the set number of people you can have an individualized relationship with at least once a week, where you really know what they're working on and how you can support them and where they're stuck. You know, If you know those things, you are able to manage as many people as you can maintain that with. But that can be done remotely or in person. It just needs to be intentional. Because otherwise, as, as the book goes on to describe, um, not my book, but their book, um, is that people start feeling like it's a burden, the check-ins, if they're less than once a week, because it's no longer to get support they need in the moment. It's now just to confirm they're doing their job. Right. And so finding ways, especially when you're remote, it may need to be every three days you have those check-ins with people when they're remote. Maybe you do it on, on Tuesdays and Fridays every week. People know you're invested in their success and you recognize what they're bringing. And by doing that, you are going to be able to manage people, even if they are remote, even if there is the hybrid where people aren't coming together and recognize when there are things coming together or not coming together in the ways people interact. That means you need to bring in um, a little more, a little more frequency, especially if it's hybrid of bringing them back together, a little more, you know, stability in doing it more often. Yeah, the key there is intentionality, I think. Mm-hmm. You have to be a lot more intentional now. Yeah, and I, and I think it's doable. And I, I was reading an article just yesterday about how important the flexibility of the workplace is, more so than hybrid flexibility, mm-hmm. that maybe people are happy to come into the office, but only 8 to 12. And that's only if they don't have something happening that's going to require they be home from 8 to 12 that particular yeah. day. You know, if you have that flexibility and you let people make their own best choice and you write, you know, and they honor it by showing up for the meetings and not using those as the times that they're suddenly unable to be on, on site. Right. You're going to have people that feel rewarded and that the, the idea of coming into an office is a pleasurable thing, not a, a painful thing. Yeah. Excellent. Good stuff. I have one more question before I let you get out of here. Okay. That is, how do people find you? How do they find me? Um, well, I have um, my company website is Dynamic Team Solutions. Org, and I welcome people to come there. We do offer a free consultation if someone wants to uh, connect in and learn about how we might be able to support their business, either for an executive or for a team. And likewise, if you're interested in my book, you can find it on Amazon. It's Find, Fix, Fill Your Leadership Gap. And also, if you go to my website, which I had given the site, uh, dynamicteamsolutions.org, at the very bottom of it, there is a place where you can click to get two free chapters and take a look, see if it's right for you. Excellent. Well, and we'll link all that up in the show notes for everybody. Perfect. And, uh, really appreciate you coming on and uh, really good stuff and a, a lot of good things that everybody that's listening can really apply right away. Thanks, Wade. And, and thank you to your audience for tuning in, um, for being the kind of leaders I like to work with, because you're obviously, uh, anybody listening to the two of us today is a leader that wants to grow, wants to change, and wants to be a, a person that helps their company and their people to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for listening to the Aim Twin podcast. As always, uh, like, subscribe, all that good stuff on wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And until next week, make it happen. Mm-hmm.